welcome to the Archimedes podcast of the Archives of Diseases of Childhood. Again, we've got a month of evidence-based wonderfulness to go through, starting with a little bit of something about how to practice medicine, and then onwards through a couple of really strikingly different case reports and reviews of the evidence in an area. As always, if you'd like to do your own Archimedes, it would be lovely to hear from you. Please follow the instructions on the website and get in contact to see if it's been done before, if it's in progress, and any hints and tips that we can give you. Now, as every child health practitioner knows, children's telly is awash with moral learnings, repetitive messages, and earworms. It can be a superb tool for the education and distraction of poorly children and an irritating barrier to bedtimes and homework and indeed a torture device. I'm not going to, but try humming Baby Shark when you next go for your team coffee or drink out and watch how everybody else's faces contort as their brains are overrun by it. One of those ear work messages uh, that bothered me when I was uh, working a little while ago was cut it once but measure twice it always pays to be precise I have found this to be actually very useful for home improvements particularly in the shower screens the under bit that stops the water running out yep that one in particular but also in understanding therapeutic randomized trials I mean, for instance, would you go on book on a holiday based on a conversation that you've had with someone on the stairs or a single posting on TripAdvisor? What about a review from the resort's own website? Mostly, mostly we would look for repetition and an ability to confirm the information, perhaps from different perspectives, from those who are more independent and and maybe even information from those who had been to close sites around them. Maybe the only time we would go with a single recommendation would be if it was from a friend whose taste in holidays very much matched our own, and potentially we had photographic proof as well. The same applies to RCTs and therapeutics, and it's built into the grade approach that we've talked about previously. What is the inherent believability of the information? How is it likely to be influenced and diverted away from the truth? Is this such an overwhelmingly big result, so impressive that it really can't be a fluke? How close does the study match what you want from the intervention? The patients included, the outcomes they examined. Is this just a one-off, the only time anybody's looked at it? Or is it repeated, where you have greater precision and confidence in the results? Now, you can call those proper terms like risk of bias, size of effect, directness and the nature of the critical outcomes, consistency of results, precision of estimates of effect. But but they refer to things that we can all fairly straightforwardly understand and get behind. One major takeaway point though, do not let publication in a major journal take away your common sense ability to assess the paper on its own merits. The first of our case reports today comes from Lucille McLean, who's at the University of Cambridge and was a medical student at the time that this was done. She reports a three-year-old who turned up to the acute admissions department with a few days history of cough, but then a fever that wasn't really responding very well and getting faster and faster in breathing. Oxygen saturations were a bit iffy and the kid was admitted on IV antibiotics with a diagnosis of a severe pneumonia. 
You're aware that in low and middle income countries, supplement zinc has been shown to have benefit in those who present with severe pneumonia. But wonder, but is this the case in high income areas? She went away and searched Cochrane Medline databases with a range of mess and free text terms and came back with 28 potential answers to her question. In the Cochrane Library, 61 in the Medlines. Now, there were multiple systematic reviews and meta-analysis, and so what she did was she took down to the most recent and the most best conducted of those, discarding a very recent trial because of its poor quality and including only the meta-analysis that drew in the best quality of information. And of course, that's the right way to go about doing this. If you've got that wealth of different data that's out there, then don't go with every systematic review. Pick the best one, the one that's honed down onto the RCTs, the one that's done a decent meta-analysis and appears to have incorporated risk of bias into the way it's working. Now, as you will probably know, pneumonia is still a leading cause of death. For about 18% of all children under the age of 5 who die, die so of pneumonia. Now, this is slightly complicated by the fact that many of those will have other long-term illnesses and pneumonia may be the final illness in some of those. But it is not a nothing illness. The BTS guidelines suggest that supportive therapy and antibiotics are the mainstay of treatment, and zinc, which has been suggested as an immune modulator, may or may not be of benefit. The systematic review had over 2,200 children in the RCTs on different trials, but they were all based in low- and middle-income countries. This review showed that there was a probable mortality benefit, and unclear how that was generated, as the severity of illnesses didn't seem to change. There was then also a further large RCT in the Gambia, so another low-middle-income country. Um, but this one varied in its population. It made sure the kids who were in this were not zinc deficient, which is something that wasn't part of the trials within the large systematic review. This was 600 children, and it demonstrated no difference in endpoints. So the clinical bottom lines that come out of this are to reinforce that broadly in low and middle income countries, zinc appears to be the right way forwards, but broadly bringing in that information about lack of benefit when there is no zinc deficiency would suggest that it is not of great benefit in the Western Europe setting. The other clinical case report from this Archimedes comes from a range of paediatricians and neurosurgeons in Oxford. Now, just to point out, you don't have to go to Cambridge or Oxford in order to submit an Archimedes, and we welcome them from all over the place, Hull, Glasgow, Australia. This one is from Drs. Johnson, Jermoen, Kelly and Drysdale, and they present a case of an eight-year-old who's got a VP shunt ventricular peritoneal shunt situ who presents with right aliac fossa pain, tenderness, vomiting, highly suggestive clinical picture of appendicitis confirmed on ultrasound imaging. Now, we know about the treatment of appendicitis, primarily surgical, could be with antibiotics in some mild or, or maybe borderline cases. But what about if you've got a bit of plastic that's going from your brain into the abdominal cavity, into the peritoneum? Well, well, the question immediately arises in the, the brains of neurosurgeons and paediatricians alike is, is can we let that plastic stay there or should it be removed to stop spread to CNS of infection? 
looking round extensively to try and draw all the information that's possible together with this, there was not a systematic review of randomized control trials with over 2,000 participants. No, no, instead, this was a series of case series reporting this unusual event. They included between 11 and 2 children and another report with, with 5 adults. The case series altogether did seem to try to differentiate between different flavours of appendicitis. Some of the case series reported where the shunts had been taken out, some where they'd been left in situ, and generally split into the perforated and the non-perforated appendicitis. Of the 16 where the shunt was left in situ, and it was a non-perforated appendicitis, only two of them ran into problems. So relatively low, but keep your eyes on it. If it was a perforated appendicitis, however, six out of 12 where the shunt had been left in situ ran into problems. Just, just as a, a further aside, of the six where the shunt had been immediately removed, even so, two patients still ran into problems, one of them with a very profound uh, CNS infection with E. coli was presumed to be from the appendicitis itself. So what's the, what's the bottom line that comes out of this? The authors suggest that probably with an unperforated appendicitis, it's reasonable to leave the shunt in situ, but to watch very carefully. With a perforated appendicitis, then really has to play that on the clinical state of the child, uh, the severity of apparently of the infection that's going on and maybe advice on the antibiotics um, on any bugs that were isolated but but early consideration for getting that shunt externalized it's not a common situation but that's a way of trying to bring the best available evidence even when you haven't got um, rcts flowing out of your ears so, some very different cases for our Archimedes this month. We look forward to hearing from you and maybe debates on the website around what the right answer is to do in these situations. We look forward to speaking to you soon, and please submit your own for the exciting things that can follow. <laughs>